0: This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Recovery Radio. My name is Steve Martoreno. I'm here on Saturdays presiding over this thing. Um, We talk about the disease of addiction and the road to recovery, of course. The whole thing is sponsored by Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. We will have uh, more about them a little later in the program. One of the great benefits of being um, sponsored by people like Retreat is that we very frequently call upon their people to talk about this disease and the work they do. Uh, Retreat is renowned. They're among the leaders in the field of uh, treating the disease of addiction. And we have the great benefit of their resources and their people to Give you a deeper dive into this. I mean, I we certainly know here on Recovery Radio that there is no shortage of news and information about the disease of addiction, uh, particularly in as we you know suffer the grip of this opioid epidemic sweeping the country. But a lot of it is, well, frankly, a lot of it's wrong. A lot of it is uh, uh, built upon myths. So, as I said, one of the mandates of the program, in addition to reminding people that you can get sober, is to arm you with a, as, as much good information as we think we can provide so that at least when and if you have to discuss the disease of addiction in your life, at least you'll, you'll have, you know, some information and maybe ask the right questions when trying to get treatment. So that and we're going to take a look at one of these things that I guess in truth you could say is a cliche about the disease of addiction. But as I always say about cliches, they're all true. That's why they're cliches. And uh, the one I have in mind now is that we often hear that this disease, the disease of addiction, is a family disease. And that's true to a certain extent to any disease. Any disease that comes to a family, if it's cancer or if it's diabetes, affects everybody. But the disease of addiction affects uh, the, the, uh, the broader family and society in a unique ways and among and when we use the term family we want to expand it for this program beyond your immediate kin and talk about the people that you come in contact with as you struggle with the disease of addiction and how they are affected chief among them for the purposes of this program are the professionals who treat this disease consider for a moment what that job must be like Uh, They hear um, some tough stories. They, on a daily basis, almost hour by hour, day by day, week by week, deal with people in in very serious crisis in their lives. Obviously, that takes a toll. It certainly takes a toll on mom and dad and brothers and sisters, uh, but it takes a toll on clinicians as well. So that you understand that at... uh, facilities that are conscientious about doing their job, they're aware of this. Certainly in the field of treating this disease, the people who do that understand that they are at a high risk for being run over or burned out, is the phrase they use, having to deal with these stories. To that end, we welcome, we have two two terrific guests who can speak from a really close proximity to this topic. Uh, Amanda Kimball has been with us many times on the program. We love having Amanda. She is clinical supervisor. At retreat, premier addiction treatment centers, and uh, Terry Lebec, who has been with us a, a while ago, and she is uh, now back with us today. Terry is a nurse up at the main facility of retreat in Lancaster County. Ladies, thanks for joining us on Recovery Radio.
1: Thanks, Steve. Thank you.
0: So, so I, did I get that right? I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to make it seem like you guys have got the toughest job in the world, but you you do have a job that can exact a toll. Correct.
1: Absolutely. I, I think that, like you said, there's this opioid epidemic that's going on uh, in this country, and we see patients who have lived a really difficult life, and we deal with crisis on a daily basis. So it does take a toll if you don't take care of yourself.
0: You see people, it's fair to say that you, you treat people uh, at their worst possible moments in their lives. They couldn't uh-huh. possibly be in worse shape when you see them, right? Right. I agree. Yeah. So, uh, unlike any other he- other healthcare professionals, I mean, if I were treating you for or treating someone for um, uh, you know something organic, uh, diabetes or cancer or something, that w- it would be a pretty easy thing to separate out from you as a person. You- you're right. you're not cancer. You-, you have cancer, but you're not cancer. Mm-hmm. It's a little different, though, with the Very disease different. of addiction, right?
2: Very different.
0: What, how is it different? T- tell me how it's different.
2: I think it's different because um, when patients finally do um, reach out for help and come into treatment they're at a point in their life where they're really broken. Mm-hmm. They're really at their you know, worst as far as maybe not physically certainly some are um, because of the disease but um, we see them beaten up um, emotionally, spiritually so to, to reach them it can take its toll. Sometimes it takes a lot to um, have them open up mm-hmm. up to you about what's really going on, besides you know the addiction, yeah. you know the, the the shame, the guilt that they come into treatment carrying.
0: Yeah. yeah. I, again, to use the metaphor of another disease, I mean, as I said, if if you've got if you've got something like cancer, cancer is affecting. Uh, it affects the person, you know, broadly, but it's a very specific kind of thing. Mm-hmm. If you know, here you, you have cancer; it's affecting you this way. When you see people, Amanda, and your and your clinicians see people, mm-hmm. as Terry said, they're they're broken in lots of places, right?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, I, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. I think that the toughest piece to get through is probably that mental, emotional, spiritual component. Uh, physical. Issues are obviously a, a big issue, but I think that those are a lot easier sometimes to treat than everything else that's going on because hmm. it's occurred and built up for so many years.
0: Well, and the folks you see are um, obviously important in; ge- they individually are important in getting healthy, but they don't—they don't have the slightest idea. I mean, of what what to do, do they?
2: They don't, and they come in, I would say most of them, they won't admit it at first, but terrified. They don't know what to expect. They're fearful, Mm -hmm. you know, and so as far as um, on a nursing standpoint, we um, make sure they're stable. We detox them medically. Then after they're detoxed from the substance, um, they've been... using, um, then the emotional piece starts, you know, and they have to work out their feelings. So that's when you get into the Mm nitty-gritty. I think Mm -hmm. I feel like the um, physical part's kind of easy in the beginning, but then you move on to the, you know, the mental, the emotional. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Right. If it were just a case of getting these people to stop abusing the substances they're abusing, that's a relatively straightforward thing. A detox, it's done. Maybe they stop using, but there are all those other things going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, how long have you been doing this, Amanda?
1: I have been in the field for about 12 years. And,
0: so. and Terry, how long have you been doing?
1: 21 years.
0: 21 years in, in the field. We're going to talk about – I know that you are in recovery as well. I want to get to that in, in a second. So it may sound like a trite question, but, Amanda, tell me how – when you wake up in the morning, mm-hmm. you get up, you get ready to go to work. That's something we all are familiar with. We get up and we go to work. All right. Tell me about how you feel. Is your head filled with, oh, my God, I'm going to have to deal with this today? (laughs) I mean.
1: Um, No. I I think that there are days that are definitely more overwhelming than others. You know, I I truly believe in the full moon concept. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I think Terry could probably co-sign that, that when there's a full moon, there's a lot of chaos going on. It just seems like there's so many issues that come up. But I think that it takes a special person to do this type of work, whether you are a supervisor, a clinician, a nurse, a CA, anybody working in this field, our transportation team, you really have to love what you do and want to help people. And I, I don't really think about it. It's just another day for me, and I love what I do, but it... You have to take care of yourself. You have
0: to. Yeah, let's talk about about that. Uh, when we talk about a special kind of person with, with unique skills, what are some of them, Terry?
2: Um, I do have to say, to be honest, when I get up in the morning, I do enjoy coming to work. Mm-hmm. I can't say it's a um, – or I wouldn't have probably been in it for as long as I have. But I know I have to um, kind of have myself um, grounded before mm-hmm. I come in, and I kind of have a ritual in the morning – for myself, you know, I um, I don't like to get up and then rush you know to work. If I ever oversleep, it kind of really does throw me <laughs> off, and uh-huh. I can feel that in the morning. And you know, um, but what I do is I try to have some quiet time. I don't put the TV on. I turn my phone off. I don't go right and start reading my emails or what's going on for the day. I can't say I was always like that, mm-hmm. but I've learned that you know it's. It'll, take care of itself when I get to work. You right. know? Unless mm-hmm. it's an emergency, they'll certainly call. But I do um, spend some time in the morning in, in quiet, and I also meditate in the morning. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so the slate should be clean for you to get, yes. get to work and, mm-hmm. and handle that. Uh, uh, Terry, when you, um, uh, you, you supervise a group of clinicians, I don't, I don't know whether you're involved in the hiring of them, but you mm-hmm. certainly would know after this period of time. Uh, when, when you're when you're thinking of hiring somebody, mm-hmm. what what are you looking for in them?
1: I think it's really important as far as characteristics for clinicians to be resilient. Um, I, I anybody working in this field, quite frankly, uh, resiliency is very important because we do have a very tough job and we are faced with things sometimes daily that we don't expect. We hear a lot of as. Then I call them normal people, <laughs> you know. The normies, the art in this field, of right. um, things that to them are horror stories, and for us, it's just another day of of helping people. So I think resiliency, uh, boundaries, is super important. As far as knowing what not to take home and taking care of yourself is very important because if we don't take care of ourselves, yeah. we cannot help our patients. Yeah. Period.
0: So this resiliency notion, mm-hmm. uh, do I understand? Um, you demean, Terry you can uh, chime in as well that uh, treating the disease of addiction someone had better be prepared to stand stand up even when they get hit with something very you, you shouldn't be knocked back on your heels easily is that right?
2: Correct and not take anything personally you yes. know you have to I know I have to remind myself you know even if somebody is really struggling it, it's not about me mm-hmm. you know it, they're sick you know mm-hmm. and they need help and So I think that, um, and when you do that, you know, the patients pick up on that when they know that they pushed your limit or they, you know, said something to you and you're just like, you know, nodding that it's okay. I always try to stress that they're... um, Kind of, so they can trust and feel safe, so they can start opening up to heal. So you you do have to be resilient. Yeah. Sometimes people aren't receptive to help. So, mm-hmm. right.
0: And th- that's a that's a fine line you have to walk because I can imagine, and we'll pick up on this in the next segment here. That as uh, professionals in the field of treating the disease, that detachment and that yes. that uh, resiliency and distance and professionalism could it would seem to me easily slip on over into kind of apathy mm-hmm. or going through the motions and certainly if you're looking for good care you don't want a clinician that feels like that mm-hmm. we're talking about the the toll of the disease of addiction on not only the immediate family but the professionals in the field who have to treat it and uh, also you uh, in, in a broader sense the toll it takes on people like first responders Uh, I know Terry uh, has worked in that field uh, extensively, so we'll pick up on all of that straight ahead. You're listening to Recovery Radio. Don't go away. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martirano with you here on Saturdays. We talk about the disease of addiction and the road to recovery. Today, we're taking a look at the toll this disease takes on society in general. Certainly, the family is the immediate collateral damage here, but... We're having, uh, we're taking some time to talk about how, uh, what happens in the uh, clinical setting. How, how do clinicians manage to maintain uh, their distance, but their empathy and their effectiveness more than anything else? If you're looking for treatment, sure, you want to see what, what their credentials are, how well educated they are and how much training they have. But it's important to know that you've got the right kind of person who can deal with the... The awful, awful reality of the disease of addiction. Terry LeBeck is with us. She is a nurse at retreat at the main campus in Lancaster County. Uh, and Amanda Kimball, clinical supervisor, talking just about that. So just bef- before the break, we were talking about, you know, you, you see people at their absolute, absolute worst, couldn't possibly be any worse. And they have horrific stories mm-hmm. uh, to tell you. I'm sure both of you have heard stories that would that would, you know, curl most people's hair. Uh, ter- um, um, Amanda, mean, t- t- just take a moment and, and tell me how you manage to keep your equilibrium when you hear just terrible stories.
1: I think that you know I've been doing this for multiple years at this point. Initially in the field, I think it's something you build up to. I want to say that um, I think that when you're first hearing things that are that are very horrible, and you're hearing these heartbreaking stories about people's whose lives were just torn apart and the things that they've been through that you can't even imagine. Um, it's very important for you to one, you know, not show judgment, not really, you have to keep your, your poker face, uh, as I always say, because you need to be able to connect with your clients. Uh, That being said, of course, these horrible things that we hear, it's easy for that to affect us as clinicians or as nurses or anybody working in this field. So I think it's really important to take care of yourself in in the respect of um, just just knowing that you're helping people, I think is super important. And as far as when when we hear these awful things, it's really important for us to not internalize that.
0: Yeah, well, that's a key. That's a key one. I want I want Terry to pick up when You deal with first responders, uh, somebody whose whose um, job involves racing into a burning building or arriving at a horrific crime scene, they have to develop that a, a skill where, I guess, for lack of a better description, they have to shut off that part that registers shock immediately, right?
2: Correct. They detach. You know, they go in. Yeah.
0: Well, t- that detachment is interesting to me because it's perfectly mm-hmm. obvious why you would need that, and certainly mm-hmm. first responders are obvious, but so are clinicians. But how, does, how do you uh, sort sh- of shut it off but but not lose the the human connection?
2: Well, I think for me, I think it's fighting the disease that um, if I, I think I get angry with the disease, not Mm -hmm. the person, if I can explain that, where the person's kind of telling me, you know, horrific story, and I really am non-judgmental, and then I think of the disease, how we all, you know, this disease is what is doing this, not that person, that this disease is horrific, and I think... um, People that work in the field, if you're not able to do that, like you want to help the people, but you can't, I mean, it's part of the disease, not that person. So I think that's a plus that you have to have like a passion or um, it's like how people do other things in life, other careers. Um,
0: so so you have, ha- that's, that's great. That, that's a great insight. I mean, you have to know when you hear this horrible story or you see the the, the measure that the disease has taken, that when you treat someone mm-hmm. as a clinician you're and this is going to sound odd you got to look past the individual
1: right right absolutely because it's i always say that people who have addiction issues aren't bad people sometimes they do bad things but it's their addiction it's not them and i have oftentimes sat in front of clients and said i'm talking your disease right now i'm talking to your addiction i'm not talking to you and i can tell immediately it's it's a, an actually really interesting and amazing thing that it is that we see but I do
0: mean, they get that do they oh and, yeah and that's like a, a revelation to them because yes. they feel like i'm the bad person i've done all this
1: yes and when they're in a spot where they're able to understand and conceptualize everything they understand okay that's my disease this is what i did in my disease but that's not who i am if mm-hmm. that makes sense yeah no
0: it makes perfect sense. Uh, um, this is a particularly difficult thing. For, forget about first responders for a second to to accept, but certainly for families, mm-hmm. th- th- that's one of the first things you have to over uh, you have to uh, instill upon a family that that's not yeah it looks like your daughter or your son or your husband, but it's really an addiction we're talking about, right?
2: Correct. That is hard, and that the only thing that can help families, which I encourage, is education. Yes, and it's hard for families because they don't know who to talk to because there's still the stigma. You know, if their son had diabetes, like you said earlier, he, they could talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. But when it's an addiction, they really feel alone. So there is support groups for families also.
0: So emotions are a huge part of this. Having to deal with the emotions, you know, factor into uh, almost everything in our lives. But certainly here it's, it's difficult because with, with regard to both the patient and their family, uh, their emotions are often working a counter, in a counterproductive way, right?
1: sure absolutely i mean a lot of families are angry sometimes the clients are i mean a lot of times they're angry because they're they're frustrated with um identifying as an addict having all these things that are going on and they just don't know how to deal with it so there's a lot of anger there's a lot of sadness shame guilt and emotions are often very high because our clients have been using to numb themselves for so many years that when they're clean and the the drug is not in their body anymore this is a new emotion they don't know what it is and
0: they're raw yes uh, and exposed and still terrified well if you know it's it's terrific if we if we learn nothing else today, and I think we will learn more. This idea that what what you guys deal with is a disease and not an individual person right. um, is a, a great lesson. Hard to learn, perhaps, mm-hmm. but absolutely critical if you're fighting the disease of addiction. Recovery Radio. We have more with our guests Amanda and Terry. Straight ahead, don't go away. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. We will uh, continue our discussion about the collateral damage that's. Uh, associated with the disease of addiction, how it affects the family, it affects first responders, it certainly affects the people who are dedicated to treating the disease of addiction, uh, the clinicians, the doctors, the nurses, and everyone else involved in it. Before we do that, though, a reminder about Retreat, Premier Addiction Treatment Centers, and, and truthfully, why they why they uh, sponsor this program. Uh could be an infomercial. I could just sit here all day and tell you all day long they're the greatest place in the world, uh, and they are. They're among the best facilities in the country. Their their reputation speaks for itself. But that's not why. I'm telling you, That's not why they're advertising on this program. It's not why they pay the freight. They want this to be an educational, informational tool, and when I give you their phone number, it is in that spirit. You can call this phone number about anything. You can certainly check out Retreat for yourself. Uh, they'll answer your questions for you. I uh, have every confidence that you'll get the best treatment in the world. But again, you can call them about anything. You can call them about the treatment you're in now. You can call them about how to find a facility. This is uh, a, a number we give you in that spirit, uh, and we hope you never have to use it. How's that? This is one of those phone numbers that, uh, you, you know, put it in the drawer, put it on the refrigerator, and God bless you, you'll never have to use it. But at the worst possible moment in your life under extraordinarily difficult circumstances, and you need to turn someplace for honesty answers this is this is a number that could help so it's 855-859-8808 retreat Premier addiction treatment centers 855-859-8808 amanda kibble clinical supervisor and terry lebeck Lebec is it Lebec or lebeck lebeck Lebec. oh you've been, me, <laughs> you've been letting me get away with that the whole time Labick is with us. To, uh, ter- uh, ter- terry-, terry, is- terry is a nurse. How sweet of her not to say, "Hey, dope." That's not my name. Um, to talk about the the uh, how they manage their emotions, their their mental state. Um, and their effectiveness as they help people treat uh, get to sobriety. Let, let me take a, a moment here and talk about uh, Terry for a second. Now, mm-hmm. you've been in the field for 22 years, but you're also uh, in recovery, right? Correct. How long have you been sober? now?
2: Well, I've been in the field 21 years uh, sober, 22. Oh,
0: 22 years. Amazing. Congratulations. That's mm-hmm. Thank that is a, you. that is amazing. It it you know, lots of people who uh, manage long-term successful sobriety wind up in the, in the, in the field helping others. That's sort of common, but I don't think I've ever had the opportunity to ask anybody in this context. Does that, the fact that you, you understand this, having experienced it, make what we've been talking about easier or harder for you?
2: I think to an extent easier because I lived it so I can understand and maybe my approach is different with patients, um because I've been in their shoes Mm -hmm. and then at other times I have to be very careful because I have to keep my recovery and my professional life separate and that can be a challenge because I'm one of those people that learn the hard way that um, I wasn't always good at this when I first started in the field because it would sneak up on me and I realized I haven't gone to meetings I haven't been doing any work on myself Mm -hmm. because when you work in the field you think that's good enough and you're and then you have to stop. And the way I stopped was I was starting to feel miserable. Like, mm-hmm. what, and I would say, what's going on? And then um, I realized I have to take care of myself or I can't even help. I can't help people. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm not doing what I'm telling them to do, I started feeling hypocritical. So mm-hmm. that's what got me on the right track. So you do have to keep it separate.
0: Yeah, with with over 20 years now, of, of you know, in, in a professional context treating this, um, I'm sure it's better, much better for you today. But was there any time early on, or even now, when you would uh, be dealing with uh, a patient and something they did or said or you observed sk- frightened you personally about?
2: Um, I can't say it frightened me. I think I felt gratitude.
0: Does it bring up? Oh, oh, so the feelings it brings up in you is that? Oh it, my God! Thank, thank goodness, yes, I'm sober.
2: I could be. I mean, that could be me. You know what I mean? Just because you know my bottom was bad but it doesn't mean it couldn't be worse so i did look at it as as much as i'm helping a patient they're also you know what i mean yeah, helping sure. me. but that's where i had to separate the two sometimes it would bring up issues in myself If a patient it's like why is that bothering me why is this patient you know i'm feeling something and it would be my own issue mm-hmm. and so i would have to learn to you know, deal with that outside, you know, mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. my own recovery.
0: W- one of the most difficult things for uh, the family and uh, and the, and the uh, obviously the, the person in active addiction to deal with is um, relapse. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering, as professionals in this field, uh, uh, Amanda, how you see people you see the same people a lot.
1: Uh, yes, uh, right, yes.
0: Uh, multiple times in here. Mm-hmm. And what what's your reaction to that? <sighs>
1: I have, I have a lot of interactions uh, to that. I think that, you know, a lot of times people try to get sober when they're young. Um, but, oh gosh, I'm trying to think of how to answer this the best way because there's so many, so many reactions that I have. Um, I think that it's more common than not to see people multiple times because a lot of people, unfortunately, don't, quote, get it right on their first try. But – we do have patients that we see multiple, multiple times, and I wipe the slate clean, and I encourage everybody working with the patient to wipe the slate clean every time they come in because I have had people that maybe are here 5, 6, 10, 12 times, literally, and on that 12th try, they get it right.
0: So they, this is a misunderstood um aspect about relapse is that while it's not inevitable, it's common. Mm-hmm. And what I'm always struck about people who are in and out of treatment multiple times is that they keep going back to treatment. Right. And, and I hear you when you say you got to wipe this, this slate clean because um, this is a process and not, you know, 28 days and yes, and you're better.
1: Right. I agree. So, but,
0: but, so, but this, but it's almost superhuman that you, that, Folks that do what you do, on the you know the eighth or ninth visit to rehab, you just don't go. Here he is again. Mm-hmm. How do you? How do you? When that thought creeps up in your head, and it it must. What what do you do? Well,
2: it. I think it does, and I think it does for some professionals. Um, but it like recovery is a process. Mm-hmm. This disease is so powerful, and I know I remind myself, and I tell a patient this that, You had diabetes, and you messed up, and you kept going back to the hospital because you weren't following your diet or you didn't take your medicine. You know, you come back to get help, and um, so each time they come back, I know they hear something, and you don't know what time. You know, we're not—we don't have that power to say, "Okay, this time you're going to get you're going to get it." Mm. But I think it is a journey, and everybody in recovery, it is. Individual and it's just how this process and this disease works. It's powerful. How does
0: the, how does a client who's been in and out of rehab? Um, um, how do they react to coming back? Can you see that they feel like they've let you down, for instance? Uh,
1: it depends on the person. I think that sometimes more often than not, people are grateful to come back. They feel comfortable with us, which is sometimes a good thing, sometimes a bad thing, depending on how comfortable they are. If they're too comfortable, they're probably not going to make a ton of progress. But I think that they feel safe, which is important. They feel safe in an environment where they can do the work that they need to on themselves. And oftentimes, I think that we need to focus on the fact that they're trying you know they're they're coming back it depends on the circumstances as well if they're internally motivated to come back or externally motivated maybe they got into some legal trouble or their family is quote making them go to treatment um it, it's different for everybody but i think it's just important to focus on the fact that they are back yeah they're trying to get the help and and we're there to support them
0: yeah it always occurs to me to be like a race where as long as you get up after falling down right it it doesn't make any difference if you're not running particularly fast mm-hmm. as long as you're still on the track. Right. And you're still moving towards some end. Um, what what goes on in inside here internally? Do you have do you have you must have people that you supervise who yes. come into you and close the door and go, Can I talk to you for a minute?
1: Yes. So I have a team of therapists that I supervise and a lot of times like Terry was saying earlier. Whether you're in recovery or or not, there's going to be a patient or a client that says something that triggers something within you. And we're human. At the end of the day, we're human. We have hearts. That's why we do this job. And it's very, very important whether you're a nurse, whether you're a CA, it doesn't matter – you know, what what you are, what position you are, it's important to talk about that and how it's affecting you because you don't want that to transfer onto your client and you want to make sure that mentally you're in a good spot too so that you can help your client. And that's very, very common. It happens all the time.
0: So as someone who supervises clinicians, and Terry is someone who's worked with first responders, you're always on the lookout for somebody who who, who might need to talk, right? A professional.
2: Correct. And um, I, I feel that I'm pretty close to my peers here mm-hmm. working, um, and you can kind of tell when somebody's, mm-hmm. you, and then you just can say, oh, you want to have lunch with me, or why don't you come down to my office? I always say my dof- office is always open, because I need that, too. Sometimes right. you just need to vent, you know, blow off some steam, or what's really going on, and... Usually, after you talk about it, you feel a lot, lot better, and mm-hmm. just that somebody's listening. You know?
0: it, 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 it's uh, it's very common for people to be accused of bringing their work home. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't care whether you're a um, you know stockbroker or a carpenter. If you bring your work home, it's going to be a problem out there. How do you guys avoid that? How do you avoid bringing your work home?
1: Um, I think <laughs> Terry and I have, have talked about this and. I, admittingly, have – I work a lot, and I, over the years, have created better boundaries. Uh, There are clients that will affect you differently than others, and you'll think, oh, you know, I hope so-and-so is okay when they go home tonight, so on and so forth, but – I think it's really important to talk about whatever you need to talk about process whatever happened throughout the day before you leave to go home so that you're not consistently thinking about it when you go home because then you're distracted you know from your family or uh extracurricular things that you do and you're not focusing on yourself and that's what burnout I, I mean that's what happens mm-hmm. when you burn out you're taking it home you're not processing it in the right forum and that's that's K- what it leads to K-
0: Terry, how important is it that family members, for clinicians and nurses a- in this field, understand what you do? Understand, I mean, to the extent they can.
2: I think it's important, but um, some of them don't understand. So that's where I think, and it's a practice for me because I was not always good at this. That um, they really don't want to hear about it, you know. Yeah,
0: we all had a tough day. You know
2: what I mean? Yeah. 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 So then I've learned they're right, and so. Um, I had to practice like unwinding before I get home now. Fortunately, I have a ride, you know, about a forty-five minute ride home, and ah. so that really helps mm-hmm. me decompress. And, and you know, and I think if I lived closer, I wouldn't be able to. So right. that helps, and um, but it's something I work on because we're human, and yeah. sometimes something happens. It does stick with you, so it's a. I would say it's a daily practice for me to be mindful of that. Yes. Yeah,
0: that's interesting. I mean, emotional um, distance is is certainly important, but physical distance can can be a factor as well. Um, we have more with uh, Amanda and Terry here on Recovery Radio. Please don't go away. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Uh, we want to thank uh, uh, Amanda Kimball and uh, Terry Godset. Lobbock. Lobbock. <laughs> Terry Lobbock. Uh, Terry's a nurse here at Retreat, and Amanda, of course, clinical supervisor. We, Amanda, I think it was you and I that had the brief conversation outside of the show one day about... I was sitting around going, wow, can you imagine doing this for a living? Know, these, <laughs> these people are crazy. I mean, I have five years of doing interviews now. I've heard, I've heard you know, mm-hmm. not as many stories as you have, but I've heard those stories. And I look around at everybody here, and I'm not just saying this because it's retreat. Um, I'm sure this goes on a lot of places. It's amazing. The good spirit, the, uh, the uh, collegial a- a- attitude, everybody's willing to help everybody around here. And I just think, how in God's name do you do this for a living and not have it grind you up? Mm-hmm. Um, and I can tell you from the people I've I've met, not only in, in, in this facility but other facilities, uh, very rarely do I, I find somebody cynical or apathetic uh, or going through the motions. This is not the kind of job you can really do that, can you? You can't fake this one.
1: No, yeah. you, you, no, you definitely can't fake this one. I think it's important to have realistic expectations about what we're going to see, what we're going to hear, although – some things might take us by surprise. I think that knowing that this disease, if untreated, is deadly, is really important. Uh, we've, you know, we've lost many people over the years, and I remember talking to somebody I supervise about, you know, this is a disease, and if we, if we don't treat it, people can die, and it's a it's a horrible thing um, to think about. And I don't mean to be morbid, but you know, it's it, it's realistic. That being said. Um, we are here and we do what we do because we love what we do and we want to help people change their lives.
0: Terry, this idea that that, uh, you you can't fake this kind of job um, is, as I said, sort of self-apparent to me, self-evident to me, but also I would guess that from your standpoint of dealing with people in active addiction, they're the least – likely people to be fooled by a phony right or somebody going through the motions right
2: correct you know um they know they know Mm -hmm. when you care about them you know and they that's what i think i love about it because they know that you're if they can tell if you're faking it you don't Mm -hmm. care you know once they know that you care they start they have a chance and that's how i look at it because like um amanda said we've lost a lot of a lot of people. people And it's only going to get worse. Yeah.
0: Um, how is that? You, you have had people that left here, mm-hmm. uh, looked okay, and then you found out subsequently they died. Mm-hmm. How, how does how does that affect you?
1: It, it's tough. Uh, it, it's really hard. I always say that is the worst part of my job. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing that one day somebody's here and and you know several months down the line. They might not be. But I, once again, try and be positive, look at everything with a positive outlook, and know that at least we tried to help, and there are people that are saving themselves mm. and are working a program and are staying sober, and we can't save everybody. Right. You know?
0: <laughs> Which is that, in in uh, regard, with regard to a, a, a Terry dealing with um, first responders and everything, they, they get that pretty clearly, right? That, that they're going to be in situations where they can't save everybody.
2: Oh, they know that. They really do. And I think that makes it tough. And I think that's how they look at this addiction and they detach from it, Mm -hmm. especially young patients we get in that are first responders. You know, it's really tough on them because, you know, they're out there in the trenches, you know. And so um, it is tough Mm -hmm. because people do, um, and they're young. You know, there's a lot of young ones, not even like thirty.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh, f- finally, this this um, this idea of boundaries mm-hmm. and um, you know um, emotional distance, but not but not apathy, is again, we want to make the point is uh, par for the course for what you do for a living. It's necessary for you to be effective at what you do, but it's m- m- absolutely critical. For the family to feel like that, right? Do hmm Do you do – you, and you've had the occasion to do family uh, groups and talk to them about this stuff. The, oh, yes. Th- from a professional standpoint, I would guess that on one level it's it's easier for you guys to get to that point than it is families because they're all wrapped up in the emotion of this thing, right?
1: Yes. I, I would say that. I think, like Terry said earlier, it's important to educate families on the disease of addiction and – Help them realize that the addiction, you know their loved one and the addiction are separate. But it's also just like we take care of ourselves in the professional st- from a professional standpoint, it's very important for family members to take care of themselves and not get too intertwined and enmeshed in and caught up in their loved one's addiction. They need to take care of themselves in order to support their loved one taking care of themselves.
0: finally, uh, uh, th- there's you know nothing good about this opioid epidemic. Um, worth discussing except in this regard it has raised awareness of this problem um to the nth degree mm-hmm. uh, are you are you seeing uh, i do not a smarter client but or and and family members but at least better informed people about this disease now than ever or are we pretty much where we we still have a way to go
1: I think it is a bit better, but I feel I I do
2: think that we have a way to go. Yes, I think to some extent, but I think um, families think it's not going to happen to my child, or mm-hmm. this can't happen, and
0: so there's a lot does. of denial. Still a lot of yes. denial, and there's yes. still a lot of um, there's still a lot of prejudice about this disease.
1: Absolutely, yes, hundred right? mm-hmm. yes. percent. and that's why I urge people: if you think something's not right. Call some call me I I mean you can call me if you have general questions if you feel like something's not right you want to get somebody in for an evaluation reach out for help whether it's us or, or somebody else I think it's important to know what this disease can do what it looks like so that you know you don't lose your loved one.
0: Terry and Amanda, thanks so much. Uh, we wanna, I want to do this again because um, it's a great topic, um, and I thank you for your time. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Steve. Thank Good you. Good seeing
0: you both again. You. Everybody, enjoy uh, the rest of your weekend, and uh, please look for Recovery Radio on Saturdays. Yeah. Take care. Yes. Bye-bye. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.